Produced by Podcast Architects. Welcome back to The Path Forward. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Rick Fernandez, where we talk about innovation and education. Today, our special guest is Dr. Eli Jones, professor of marketing at the Mays Business School and formerly dean of the Mays Business School. Dr. Jones is a prolific author, but today he's going to share his latest heartfelt creation, Run Toward Your Goliath. I am so excited to get to talk to him about his journey and learn from Dr. Jones. Well, Dr. Eli Jones, welcome to The Path Forward. It's great uh, to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to join you. Well, yeah. we're going to dive right in. So we're both educators, yes. right? Um, K-12 and obviously higher ed mm -hmm. from your end. What should our kids be learning these days? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. When you think about all the activities that are going on, you think about all the changes that are taking place. You know, I tend to look at what are the fundamental things that students, all students should learn. And I think about it from an accreditation standpoint. Okay. I served on the Association to Advance Collegiate Schools of Business, the board of that organization, which is a global organization. I did that for three years. Uh, and, and that board speaks a lot about, you know, what are the, the main learning goals that we should institute in our organizations? And so I'll come at it from that perspective. Okay. And so when you think about it, the fundamentals, critical thinking skills, mm -hmm. right? Communication skills, technical competence in a discipline. Ah. Right? And then you can add to that, and some schools do. Here at Mays, we focus on those three, critical thinking skills, communication skills, and technical competence in a discipline. If it's finance, accounting, management, marketing, information systems, we look at the rubrics associated with testing those students in those areas. But you can always add, I mean, we're in a global world. And if you look at it from a business perspective, you've got a lot of global organizations, even smaller organizations you consider the supply chain. And many times you're working with global supply chain. So you still have to have some uh, degree of knowledge in the area of globalization. Cultural competence is another one, right? You look at the, in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion, mm -hmm. now, that is a growing area. Hot topic. Absolutely. It's a hot topic. And, and how do you uh, really have these difficult conversations, sensitive conversations yes. as a leader when you're talking about this very area, diversity, equity, and inclusion? And how do you measure the effectiveness right. of these kinds of programs? So in summary, I think you've got to start with the blocking and tackling, right? The fundamentals. I like it. How do you communicate, mm -hmm. right? What do we need to do to improve those communication skills, written skills, speaking skills, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and how do you think critically about a problem? How do you identify a problem and then come up with some kind of a solution to that problem, a potential solution? And what I've learned being an educator for many, many years now in the higher education space in particular is, you know, students in general struggle with ambiguity. Yes. More than anything. Humans. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we struggle <laughs> yes. with ambiguity. And so when you, when you think about it from that perspective, you, you give a student a problem to solve. And uh, in, in the higher you go in our education, so you get into our graduate program. Right. You know, there we want to look for those who can handle ambiguity because there's not one simple answer to any of these business problems now. Mm -hmm. Right. You got to be able to sort through the ambiguity, identify what are the critical issues, and then think about possible solutions. 
So those are the things that I think about. Question for you in terms of the learning process for for kids, and I say kids, K-12, higher ed. Mm -hmm. How do we expose them to the thought process when when, uh, entrepreneurs, business people, anyone, Mm -hmm. the mistakes? And what I mean by that is I've learned the most, I think, um, because I've either had mentors or I was had access to when a mistake is made or, or you, you thought this was going to work, didn't work well. And then the process of how you identified and how do you, how you correct it? I think that's a piece that's, that's missing because, you know, when you hear people speak, you hear kind of how they started. Right. 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 And they have a story and then they kind of skip some of those pieces. And then, you know, now I've got this company and it's mm-hmm. doing well. Um, but I think being exposed and being let in to like, Hey, this is this part in, in the moment went really wrong. Mm. And this is how we had to address it. What's your perspective of seeing all kinds of businesses and, and working with so many um, different types of people on giving access to that piece of it? Is yeah. it valuable? It, oh, cr- critical. <laughs> so if you go to most successful entrepreneurs and I'm blessed because I'm surrounded yeah. By po- folks who can give to the college, people who can give to the university, mm-hmm. and uh, and big dollars at that. So I, as a dean of bit three flagship business schools, I had an opportunity to travel and visit with alums here at A and M. We call former students. I am a former student, and uh, and so going out and visiting with folks who can give at very high levels to support our institution. One of the things that's very common when you listen to their stories. Mm-hmm is they failed yes. multiple times, right? And so I think one perspective here is to encourage, especially if you're talking about innovation, if you're trying to create an innovative culture, right. you've got to allow failures. It's just that simple, okay? right? And so most of these very successful business people will tell you, fail, fail fast, right? So if you see that you've developed something that's not quite working, fail fast. Declare that one didn't work. Let's move on to the next ah, thing. I was going to ask you, what, is, what does yeah. that mean? Okay. Yeah. I, so, I mean, don't let yeah. it linger. Because you of your see, pride or right. what have you. Yeah. It's okay that we tried it. It didn't work. Fine. Let's move on to the next thing. The other thing that I'm learning is, uh, and I, in fact, I was just talking to someone at EY, mm-hmm. all right? Uh, Ernst Young. And um, and so they established a foundry, which is kind of interesting. You've got these kind of skunks works kind of deals yeah. going on in businesses now, big businesses, where they're allowing folks to go off and create things in the background, right? And that constant innovation, I think, is really, really key. You think about, for example, 3M. 3M has been known for many years as an innovative company, mm-hmm. right? I love the story about how post-its got started. I love that story. That was a mistake, right? Mm -hmm. And it turns out, post-it notes, we we rely on those things now, right? (laughs) Yeah, they're everywhere. They're everywhere, but that originally was a mistake. And you go back and look at some of the best innovations, and many times it was a quote-unquote mistake. Or you come up with another iteration of right. that product. It sparks an idea that leads yeah. to what works. Yeah. And we've got to get people to embrace that. Okay. You know, uh, as a business dean at three different locations, one of the things that I, I said, and it was, yes, someone would come up with an idea, a faculty member, a department head, mm-hmm. a center director. And I, I leaned more towards saying, yes, let's try it. Let's try it. 
And the consequence of that is we were very innovative mm -hmm. in some in some critical areas, sure. but we tried it. Now I've got dean colleagues who lean more towards saying no, right, right, and it's okay. We all have our own leadership styles, but you know, the more you say no, the more you restrict your people sure. from trying different things. So my bias is a yes, and most of the people around me can yeah. tell you they have got this idea. It's like great, let's try it, make it happen. Yeah. And there are going to be some failures along sure. the way. And we should be able to say, okay, that didn't work, but that's fine. Let's move on. I think for every failure, you can find a success, mm -hmm. right? Again, you've got to take that and say, okay, we tried it. It didn't quite work that well. Maybe we didn't have the right market for that. Let's try a different market. Same product, same service, different market, mm -hmm. right? Maybe it wasn't done in the right mode. All right. I'll give you some examples. You know, here at Mays, um, when I came back, you know, I'm a graduate of Mays, and I came back in 2015 to be the dean of Mays, uh -huh. which is really interesting because I'm a student here. So you've I, got the whole perspective. I got the whole perspective. Yeah. 40 years, over 40 years of knowing Texas A&M from both an undergraduate student all the wow. way up to being a dean of a Okay. Well, that could be a school. good thing or, or a bit of a curse, right? It well, it was great for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope it was great for you. It was great for me. But, uh, you know, what I learned along the way is, uh, you know, you think about, you know, I remember coming back and we were talking about analytics, mm -hmm. all right, at that time. And how do we build analytics programs throughout our college? I really lean more toward analytics, all right? And we had a little bit of resistance going on in the college, but, but we kept punching through that, all right? And it turns out, you know, I was able to bring in a colleague to lead our master's programs. Mm -hmm. And one of the outcomes of bringing this individual in is in working with the students in our master's programs we created an analytics competition in the healthcare space, oh, wow. partnered with Humana. Uh huh. All right. Bruce Broussard, the yeah. CEO of Humana, is Huge a Mays grad. Yeah. I didn't know that. He's a Mays Business School there grad. You go. Yeah. He's one of the CEOs that we tout when we talk about the university producing right. these CEOs. And so Bruce Broussard and his team at Humana allowed our students in the MBA program to pitch this idea of starting a data analytics competition. And it went national. So it was one of the largest data analytics competitions. It allows the students to dig into data mm -hmm. that Humana has and to come up with some potential solutions in the healthcare space. There, you're trying to teach the students to think about all the data that we have, right? All kinds of data that we have. We have so much data that the first question ought to be, what is the problem we're trying to solve? Right. What do we because, yeah. because so of what? Yeah, yeah, what is it, right? And so through that data analytics competition, which is now a national competition, uh, we have hundreds of students participating in that, and they're solving a problem in the healthcare space. That's the Humana data analytics competition. That was birthed out of us saying, we want to do something in analytics. Yeah. We were real fortunate. Our College of Science had an MS analytics program in the College of Science. And the founder of that program came to me and said, hey, we really want to give that over to Mays Business School. Mm -hmm. So we now have a master's of science in analytics, right? Okay, let's keep going. We have a faculty member in accounting. He's an associate professor, Dr. Karok Ray. Mm -hmm. All right. We wanted to start the Mays Innovation yes. Research Center, right? We went to Lowry Mays, right? Our namesake. Mm -hmm. 
and he went to the Coke Foundation. We got $5.6 million to start the Mays Innovation Research Center. Out of that, we just hosted in April a global cryptocurrency. Yes, I'm very much aware. All right. One of my passions. It started with us talking in 2015. Can we do something in the analytics space? And out of that, we have all these innovations that have came up, that have come up. And I think that's an important part of this. You've got to allow people to experiment. So let me let me help you with how that that idea spawned. And now I'm semi-connected to that idea. So I met Dr. Ray through Ben, yeah. right? I'm very passionate about blockchain and just trying to understand what it is. And he mentioned he had this innovation center and that they were trying to figure out um, how to utilize the robotics mm-hmm. lab. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, well, I've got districts that would love some type of interaction, mentorship between college kids, high school kids. Mm-hmm. What if we could develop a way where there's a, a semi-mentorship and maybe there's pieces of the project if the kids if the kids are working on something for the medical uh, community or or whatever, mm-hmm. um, maybe the high school kids take a piece of it, the college kids take a piece of it, and then there's some some unification. Yeah. And we're doing everything virtually now anyway, right. so if we couldn't be on site, but could you once a week, once a month, stream and work together in that lab setting? Sure. So we, we have been discussing that and how that would look. Yeah. But see, that's all from the, that wow. starting point. Wow. Of but it's, yeah, it really yeah. is. It's yeah. a small world of how that how yeah. that stuff happened. And it spawns other innovation. It does. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. It's and so it's, it's coming in with that attitude. Let's try it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we should not be afraid to fail. Yeah. The most innovative organizations are not afraid to fail. It's just that simple. And I believe it's the tone at the top. I do believe that you've got to have the tone Absolutely. at the top that says, okay, let's try it. So let me ask you this. This is, this is something I've kind of, I've struggled with. Um, with anything with change, but how do you create a system where there's that flexibility of, of failure, right? That you know that the greater things are going to come from it, but you balance it with the guardrails of the curriculum. And because traditionally curriculum is if you fail, yeah. there's a punitive you know, reaction to that. So how do you create the environment well, where it's, it's not as, a, as punitive, but maintain the integrity of the curriculum and the maze reputation? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's great. So what I heard in your question is I heard multiple perspectives. And so I want to start with sure. what I think is really the, the real gem of your question. And it really is, I think, an opportunity for us in education. So we tend to give exams mm-hmm. where we say this is the right answer and these answers are wrong. Yes. Okay. And that's how we teach right? That's what we do, that it's the right answer. Mm -hmm. All right. And so when you go into the business space and you know this, many times there's not one right answer. Right. All right. Many times we don't even know the answer. So it takes real leadership to, you know, to get people to try things, that's for sure. But you're right. If you think about the way we educate and the way we grade exams, if you're saying this is the right answer, that is the wrong answer, then it is, quote unquote, punitive. Mm-hmm. We give grades. You know, we need to think about experiential education more. I love experiential education. And it takes you beyond, I should say, beyond, thank you, beyond just the grading of that. So experiential education says, let's take you to a new country. Mm-hmm. 
Let's travel abroad. Now, we do a lot. In fact, Texas A&M leads the country when it comes to global programs. Here at Mays, believe it or not, we don't promote this as much as we probably should, but we're one of 15 business schools in the country that's partly funded by the U.S. Department of Education. I had no idea. And it's through a grant. It's called the CYBE grant, the Center for International Business Education. And so we get funding from the U.S. Department of Education. And part of that is to create these global programs. Mm -hmm. Right down the hallway, we've got a center that focuses on international business, right? And part of that is the experiential side. So beyond the classroom, beyond the grading, what's right and what's wrong, we take students abroad. Now, pre-COVID, we were able to do a lot of that, right? We, do, we sign partnerships with so many universities mm-hmm. abroad. It's just incredible through the SAI program in our Center for International Business Studies. All right. So now let's take an example. If I'm teaching business ethics, mm-hmm. all right, if I'm teaching business ethics in the course, in the classroom, all right, I might use a textbook and in that textbook we'll say that this is right, this is wrong. Right. Take someone abroad to a different culture, a different way of doing business. And what we may call wrong here is customary there. That's why experiential education is so important. You've got to take the students and immerse them in something Mm -hmm. so that they learn beyond the classroom. And we focus on that here at Mays Business School. We focus on this across Texas A&M because of all the study abroad. There are more. There are more opportunities. When we say to a student, we want you to get an internship, mm-hmm. all right? Get a summer internship. Now they're going to take beyond the classroom what they've been learning, and they're going to go into a business, and they're going to put what they've been learning into practice, sure. right? That's why I think when you look at education as a whole, you say, okay, there are things we're doing in the classroom that we must do. We've got to be mindful of these you know, student-faculty ratios. That's a big thing when it comes to accreditation. You know, you want to give a quality education. So you can't load up the classroom right. where they overwhelm the, the faculty member. Sure. Or if you do have a large classroom, you got to give enough support, you know, some faculty, some sometimes graduate assistants and sure. those kinds of things. you got to factor that in. And we're going to have these students matriculate through a curriculum starting with a large class when students are trying to find themselves, Yes, right? I changed majors three times, you know? And uh, I encourage my my grandkids. I'm so glad you said that because so many high school kids and college kids for that matter are freaking out because they don't have it figured out. They don't know. Yeah. And and they don't necessarily have to. I don't think they should. Okay. In in fact, when I have the opportunity to to even speak to parents, I tell the parents, allow them to discover themselves. Mm -hmm. It's a discovery process. I benefited greatly by being a first generation college student, right? Mm -hmm. So I didn't have parents saying, you need to take this and don't take that. I didn't know, they didn't know, all right? I started thinking, hey, I think I'm gonna go into accounting. Now we have a wonderful award-winning faculty here in our accounting department. And I often tease because I ended up being the dean over all five departments, accounting, (laughs) finance, information systems, management, and marketing. But I always teased with the department head of accounting. I said, I was an accounting major for half a semester. (laughs) Right? But wait, even better than that, 
When I grew up in high school, I always thought I was going to be a vet. I love animals, right? And so here we are. Yeah. We got the, the hub. world class. Yes. My daughter, that's what school. she wants to do. She wants to come here and be there. Yeah. Event. Absolutely. As a junior in high school, I ended up interning at the vivarium across the street here mm -hmm. at the vet school and discovered this. I'm allergic to most animals. <laughs> it's like, what is this all about? I love it. <laughs> that's a heck of a time to, it, it really <laughs> to learn this. You know, so I, I love dogs. I love dogs. You know, I, I, you know, I grew up on a farm. My dad was a serial entrepreneur. He had a farm, a ranch, and plus he had other businesses and all. And so I kind of, I grew up around that. Sure. I didn't know I was allergic to oh, cats. Well, tell me the story about like, when the first time did you figure it out? Like literally the first day when you were over there? Like how did yeah, you? Well, you know, at the Viber, you've got these folks bringing in their animals. Uh -huh. you know, it's kind of a, an animal clinic, if you will. And uh, as they were bringing in certain animals, I started sneezing. It was one of those like, what is going on <laughs> here? All right. I later learned, and I wish I would have known this in high school, but I later learned, you know, you've got researchers over there in the vet school and they don't really touch the animals right. doing research. I didn't know that. My parents didn't know that. No one in my sure. network knew that. I learned it later. My point is, I thought I was going to be a vet. Oops. <laughs> I thought I was going to be an accounting major. Oops. I went to journalism because I love, I was in broadcasting at the time. Okay. I loved to write. I, I, oh, okay, I'm going to go into this. Graduated with a journalism degree from here, went out, and then later discovered, you know what? I had a lot of informal business education growing up around entrepreneurship, all right? But I needed formal business education. Sure. So I came back and I got an MBA and I went out in corporate and I came back and I got a PhD and then I became an academic. Along the way, there were lots of discoveries right. until I finally figured out, hey, I was born to do this. Right. All right. You've got to allow your kids, right, your young adults, your students to explore. And I think the golden time for that is in college. Right. So, I mean, okay, we've got certain restrictions. We, you know, we have a certain number of credit hours sure. students have to, you know, go through in order to get a degree. They shouldn't go over that, right? So that's a statewide mandate, all right? It took away a little of the discovery because, yeah, you need to discover, but don't take too long, right? right? Because yeah. you have- Discover quickly. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, and I, I see both sides of right. that, but I do think, and I'm, I have a grandson who's a freshman here now. And I'm telling him, go explore, go find yourself, get involved in organizations. He's doing that. He's in a couple of uh, student leadership organizations. Uh, you know, he's discovering, he, he thinks he wants to be a marketing major. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I'm a marketing professor, right? He thinks he wants to go into sales. He's really good at it. He's a great relationship builder. He may end up in that. That's what I teach. That's what I write about. That's what I did in corporate with sales and sales management. But because of his exposure, he thinks he wants to do this. And I put no pressure on him. Mm -hmm. All right. He uh, just this summer, he went through uh, fish camp and met a lot of folks interested in finance. He came back to me, calls me Papa. He says, Papa, I'm thinking about finance. I'm like, great. Go do it. Right. He, he's learning about Aggies on Wall Street, which mm -hmm. is one of our all star programs in May's Business School. And I'm saying, go try it. All right. So I'm a grandfather telling my grandson, a freshman here, go try it. Go do some things. Take your time. Discover yourself. Right. It's a long haul. Right. You finish as an undergrad at 21, 22 years old. Sure. 
you know, you're going to work until at least 65. You got a 40 something year run ahead of you, right? Why not try some things here yeah. that'll get you off to a fast start? So if you were given advice, like we, if you have a kid, whether it's high school or college, says, I want to be a business owner, an entrepreneur. I want to be in that space and be creative. What's the one thing that they should be working on? If they don't do anything else, what is the skill that they need to build to get them there? That's a brilliant question because, you know, I always look at, I start with sales and, and you've got to be an entrepreneur to be successful sure. in sales too. So I do see the linkages there. You know, I start off our salespeople born a maid. And so when I'm teaching a class, I start there. The same thing can apply to entrepreneurship. Are entrepreneurs born or made? Right? Okay. Classic question. And so when you dig into the research there, you're going to find that there are certain traits. Right now, okay. if it, you know, I'm a researcher. So if you look at traits, traits are things that you're born with, right? Uh, they're innate. And they are people who are born with certain traits mm -hmm. that lend themselves to being a successful entrepreneur, right? So if you look at the big five personality traits, and people can Google this if they want to, the big five personality traits, you're going to see conscientiousness, mm -hmm. extroversion. You know, you're going to see some of those traits. I'd encourage people to do that. Um, one, I'd, I, I kind of, I kind of take it lightly. Neuroticism is one of those traits. Mm. Being neurotic, which is kind of interesting. There's always, we call it an inverted U. You get, it, there's a, yeah. a level with <laughs> yeah. marginal it's, returns, yeah, right? There you go. Yeah. So um, being neurotic to, a, to yeah. a point. But you look at these different traits and what that, to me, that research says that we're born with some of this. All right. And because of those personality traits that we're born with, they are supposed to be stable over time. They don't necessarily change. Okay. All right. So from that standpoint, true, entrepreneurs have certain traits that they're born with. All right. But then there's this whole learning side, right? The exposure to it, the ability to actually see risks, the ability to take risks. Okay. And risk taking is the key to entrepreneurship. Risk taking is the key and there's kind of a if you if there's a spectrum it's like okay i'm i'm kind of a averse i'm yeah. risk averse right and there are people who are risk seeking and there's a whole spectrum and so mm -hmm. where are you on that spectrum if you're risk averse then there's a low likelihood you're going to be successful in entrepreneurship right. all right if you're risk seeking there's a higher likelihood that you're going to be successful in entrepreneurship and some people have strong feelings about risk. I grew up around entrepreneurs, serial entrepreneurs, my mom and dad. I, oh man, I could tell you stories about watching them take certain risks because I grew up around it. I'm not risk averse, mm -hmm. right? That's why I come in and say, let's try it. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you look at the traits that are stable over a period of time. All right, in particular, those big five personality traits. And wherever you are on, in terms of those traits, either you're going to be, the likelihood is that you're going to be more six foot successful or not. And then you think about the exposure, right? So as educators, we can't do much about the traits. People are born that way, right? But we can do things about exposing our students to different opportunities and encourage them to take certain risks. 
Let me give you a really good example about traits. I love telling this story. So I've got 10 grandchildren, so right. I've got a pretty large sample size. Oh, you you about to fork over some money for Christmas. Huh? Uh, you know it. You know it. All right. That's right. That's probably what my wife is doing today is ordering for Christmas. But um, and so I, I, because I'm a researcher, I pay attention to these kinds of things. And I've often asked myself, are entrepreneurs born or made? And so I have a chance now. You know, I see it in my grandchildren because I'm looking for when do these traits start appearing? Start manifesting. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. And so I have to tell you this story. So some years back, I had, uh, they're all much older now, but I had a two-year-old and two three-year-olds. Okay. So my son had a, a son and my daughter had a son, right? So two three-year-olds and one two-year-old. I decided to take them to play putt-putt, okay. miniature golf. True story. This is true. And this, to me, spoke to when do these traits begin appearing, mm -hmm. right? So I've got a grandson who's now 12. Or he was three at the time. And he is, when you look at his personality, I just love him. To, when you look at his personality, he's more of a conformist, right? If you're doing, if you're doing the disc exercise, he's yeah. going to be one of those. Yeah. The C, he's a high C, right? And so I'm teaching him how to play putt-putt. And he was right there with me, and he was watching every move I made, all right? He was trying to put it, bending the knees, the whole thing, mm -hmm. all right? He stayed with me. His name is Ian, all right? I have a grandson who's the same age now. He's also 12, all right? But his personality is quite different, right? He's, he's extroverted. Mm -hmm. He's, um, he's a, more of a risk taker. He's more of an expressive, if you will. He's become an incredible musician, by the way. He's learning things all the time. He's playing a piano. He's learning how to play the stand-up bass. Now he's writing music in Ableton Live. That's it's just, just incredible. It's so beyond me. Like I'm just always in awe of anyone that can do that. Yeah, he's he's got that kind of mind. It's very creative. While we were playing putt-putt, all right, his game was very different. So what he was doing was three years old. He was at one of the little ponds uh -huh. while Ian was with me. Elijah was at a little pond, and his game was, I'm going to throw the ball into the pond, all right? I mean, use the putter to pull the ball out of the pond. That was his game. <laughs> and while Ian and I are over there playing putt-putt, Elijah screams at us, hey, guys, let's play this game. <laughs> True story. Yeah. One more. And so little Judah was two years old at the time. And so little Judah was watching all of this. He was watching Ian playing with me. He was watching his brother over there playing a different game. Judah watched this and he discovered that the goal was to get the ball in the hole. Mm -hmm. So rather than using a putt-putt, a putter, I should say, rather than using a putter, he picked up the ball, walked over and put it in the hole and looked back at us and was like, what's your problem? Bottom line, and you know what? I yeah. watched the that. simplicity of it. Yeah, just like, is this the goal? Yeah. Let's go. What are y'all doing over there? Well, yeah, why are you wasting time? Let's get this done. <laughs> Two years old, and so what that demonstrated for me was these traits are real. People are born with these things, and I'm now watching them grow up. And I've got you know nine, ten years uh -huh. to just watch what they're doing, and they're consistent as I'm seeing them grow. They're really consistent with what I saw when they were two and three years old, right? That tells me that traits are real. You're born with some of these things. And if you have some of those traits that are more conducive to being a successful entrepreneur and you're exposed to the right opportunities, you'll be a successful entrepreneur.
So ultimately you're saying kids need to understand who they are. They need yes. to experiment, yeah. understand who they are and embrace. Absolutely. Absolutely. I like that. And there's so many personality yeah. tests out there. So when I'm teaching sales and sales management, I start the class with this one exercise just for, so that my students can know more about them. Uh-huh. And in sales is about adaptive selling. So it's, if I know who I am, my strengths and my weaknesses, and I'm calling on someone who's different, right. I need to learn how to adapt to that person's style right. mm-hmm. and communicate to that person in the way that that person appreciates the yeah, communication. It. Mm-hmm. All right. So I teach that way. It also gives me, as a faculty member, it gives me some insight into the kinds of students I have in the classroom. And what I do now is I adjust the way I teach based on the social styles matrix, the the personality yeah. was, which, which, of the class. What we argue in K-12 is we should be doing like everybody should have an individualized education. Yeah. And when you have a classroom of kids, they all have different needs. Yep. Therefore, we have to adapt that's based right. on the needs of class. I completely agree with that. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to get into the book. Okay. And I, I all, all disclosure, I watched the Mastercast and I was just floored. Mm-hmm. So I guess I just, I always like to start with why. Yeah. Why, what sparked you to, to number one, to start writing, but really your third book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is my third book and I normally write business books. Yes. Right? And this one is very different. It's about my wife and I and it's about our faith journey, right? And so what triggered it is my wife's mother Mm -hmm. passed away at 51. Our kids came along and they barely remember her. You know, some never met her, right? Um, And so what's interesting about it is my mother-in-law left behind, I call it a legacy piece. She left behind a diary, okay, right? And that diary has floated around the family you know, my wife has three siblings and that diary has floated around. And so my wife got the diary mm, four or five years ago. And so now it's in our home, right? Each sibling had a chance to hold on to that diary and read it and absorb it and read it over wow. and over and over again. All right. I mean, every time they read it, they get more insight into her life and what was going on with her and how she was thinking. Well, I observed my wife reading the diary to our children. All right. And I've got adult children. All right. Our youngest is 38. So they, they come to the house now and Fern will go into the room and mainly the daughters and, and they'll sit there and, and they'll come out crying. They're like, Whoa, man, I learned, I just heard from my grandmother kind yeah. of a thing. It was so powerful. And I've watched it over and over again. So a few years back, I said, I'm going to write a book. I mean, it's kind of a glorified diary, if you will. Okay. All right. It's kind of that. I'm going to write a book so that my adult children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren to come mm-hmm. will have something that they can look at and understand their history, right? Who they are and whose they are. Yeah. Because there's a big part of faith in that book. It's about our faith journey. So I started the project and I was focused on that. I was writing to my kids, my grandkids, and I my great grandkids to come because I realized the power of leaving something like that behind. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I watched it with my wife and our kids. So I started the project and I was busy as a Dean. And it was one of those things I was writing academic research, sure. doing a lot of things as a Dean, going to different events, going all over the place, raising money, you know, working with faculty and staff and students. 
And so I was I was making baby steps on this project. I really was. I'd wake up four o'clock in the morning, write when it struck you. Yeah, yeah, struck yep, you. boom. I might write a sentence or a paragraph. Say, oh, gotta go, and then coming over to the school. So I was taking baby steps for sure. My oldest daughter passed away in 2019, and um, and you heard it on the Mastercast. Yes. It was a complete surprise. It was a routine medical procedure, right? She left behind three children. Yeah. All right. My grandson, who's a freshman here, is the son of the three. Right. And so when that happened in 2019, which was a complete shock to all of us, I began thinking, I need to really do this book. I need to write it and I need to get serious about it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it became urgent. So I took an administrative leave at the beginning of this year. That's what I did. I focused on it. You know, it was therapeutic for me yeah. to kind of write it. Is it painful? Is it was at yeah. parts. There were certain parts of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's go there. So sure. the premise is, if you think about a man of faith, you think about David and Goliath. People talk about David and Goliath all, all the time. All the yep. time. All right. And so I've heard it. I grew up listening to, you know, as I, I grew up Catholic and I listened to David and Goliath and that story. And, it, you know, it kind of sunk in my spirit a little bit, but. To be honest, it was like that's kind of a myth. I don't know that. I don't know if that even exists. Right. A nine feet tall person. I don't know. Look in the Guinness Book of World Records. There is. A, <laughs> yes, there is. There's a possibility that Former that basketball actually, player. I always, I'm always interested. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. You played basketball, so you see <laughs> some seen these tall. Yeah. yeah. And so the story, as you well know, of David and Goliath. There's David, a little shepherd boy, a teenager at that, running toward Goliath. Right. With his five smooth stones and a shepherd bag and a sling, right? And that story is a classic story that we've heard over and over and over again. I started looking at this giant as really now a metaphor. Uh -huh. And I started thinking about it in the course of a lifetime. You're going to face a lot of giants. They come in different forms, right? My wife and I, when we first started with children, I'm at the tail end of my undergraduate days. We have children. Poverty was our biggest giant at that time. Mm -hmm. All right. True story. I, you know, we got pregnant again. Our youngest daughter was coming. I didn't have a job, <laughs> didn't have health insurance. I was worried about whether or not I was going to be able to pay the hospital bill. But my baby was coming, right? And fortunately, thank God, things worked out. I ended up getting a job in sales and, and I learned, I, you know, I'm okay in this area, I'm, you know, but uh, I need to feed my family. I need sure. to get insurance. I was real fortunate. I started my selling career at the Eagle newspaper here in town and uh, just in time because you had to be employed for a certain amount of time for the health insurance to kick in. Right. Yeah. And it was just in time. Amazing how God works. Amen. Amen. We were able to, you know, baby was born. We were able to pay the hospital. Everything worked out. Poverty was one of those giants. All right. And then I started thinking about, you know, over the course of a lifetime. Now, remember, I'm talking to my kids, my grandkids and my grandkids to come. I want them to know that life is not perfect. There are going to be twists and turns. There are going to be some surprises. Yeah. Right. I think it's important that we as parents and grandparents, that we expose our children to this fact that it's not going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm around, I don't know, 6,500 students 
around this business school, right? And on occasion, I have the privilege of speaking. In fact, I'm going to speak to a student here in just a little while. And I'm listening to them and I'm asking, well, what, what are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish in that? And being candid, being absolutely transparent, many times I'll walk away saying, that's just too idealistic. It's not real, right? right? You're not going to graduate from college and be a CEO right. of a major corporation in five years. But if I listen to some of the students, like, what are your goals? I want to be a CEO of a major organization in five years. That's not going to happen. I'm sorry. You're going to have to go through some things. You're going to go through some struggles. You're going to hit some walls. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail. All of those things are going to happen. But if you stay with it, if you don't give up, mm -hmm. you'll be able to reach those goals. But I think it's important for us as parents grandparents to set the right expectations, right? I even tell parents when they come in, they visit with me and they're talking about their student, their kid, you know, sometimes they'll come in and they, they will overpower the kid. You know, I'm there to meet with the kid who's wanting to join our college. And I'm asking the, the young adult, what do they want? Yeah. What do you want? And the parent is interfering. It's like, Whoa, wait a minute. Just pause. Let your child speak. Mm -hmm. This is about him or her. Sometimes we, we call them helicopter parents. Yeah. They come in, right? We know a little bit about that in K-12. <laughs> yeah, so you know, yes, sir. right? And sometimes yes, sir. the helicopter parents will not allow their children to learn. Mm -hmm. They stop the learning process. Let them go through the process. That's all about yeah. learning. They cut the grass in front they, of them. The lawnmower parents, yeah. that's the other things. You have the helicopter parents, you have the lawnmower parents. They go before and make sure it's all pristine, right? And I, this is me. You know, I'm, I'm sure people will disagree with this, but this is just my perspective. I've learned uh, so many times that if you set the right expectations, I'll give you one example, and I said it in the Mastercast. As a parent applying to get into this MBA program, right here, it was before it was May's Business School, I remember meeting someone in my life that continues to Im impact me. He's deceased now. His name is Dr. Dan Robertson. And I remember visiting with Dr. Dan. Remember, I'm a first gen. Yep. I didn't even know where to start. I mean, I, I went through the undergraduate program, got through it. Now I want to get an, a graduate degree. I didn't even know where to start. What, do I, what tests do I take? What, right. You're navigating on your own. On, yeah. And I, I was blessed to meet Dr. Dan. All right. One of, and this, I'm talking years ago. We're talking mid to early 80s when this happened. And I'm with children. I said, hey, I'm, I'm a father. I'm, you know, I, I want to go through the MBA program. I'm trying to figure it all out. And one of the things he told me, and I never forgot it, he said, take that undergraduate workload and multiply it by seven mm -hmm. and you're getting close. He didn't sugarcoat it. Yeah. He didn't tell me it was going to be easy. He gave me the real expectation. And so when I got there, I wasn't surprised. It's like, oh, he told me, take that workload, multiply it by seven. I'm not surprised by this workload now, all right? As opposed to, oh, you can make it. It's going to be great. You can do it. Hang in there. No, he said, multiply it by seven, and now you're getting close. This book is intended to set the right expectations for my adult children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, because I don't want them to be surprised. And I left them with some smooth stones along the way, lessons that I've learned. Okay. All right. And I want them to be able to read that. And it might be long after I'm gone. They can pick that up 
Just as my children read the diary of their grandmother, they can pick that up and say, huh, Papa left us a book of recipes. A path. Oh, here's a path. Yeah. Right? That's the goal. As I was writing it, I shared draft chapters with that I acknowledged the folks at the very back of the book, those people who were kind enough to read draft chapters and give me feedback. And, and several of them said, you know what? This is good stuff. Maybe you ought to publish this. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I went on and went through the process, and I've got it published. Just run toward your Goliaths. Right? And it's a faith journey. All right. A lot of personal testimonies. I made myself vulnerable. Yeah, you would have to. I, would I made myself vulnerable, but I'm, I'm putting myself out there because it's all real. It's all true. And it's a faith journey. There's no way I could have gotten here without all the incredible people who crossed my path at the most amazing times, precisely when I needed them. They were there like Dr. Dan. Right. And I'm acknowledging them. And here's the key part. I'm not unique. You talk to other people in their yeah. faith journeys, you'll find very similar things. And so that's what this book is about. It's a recipe book. It's, hey, if you do these things and you learn these things, you're going to be okay. All right. But don't sugarcoat. You know, I got to ask as a dad, I've got an 11 year old daughter, eight year old son and a three year old son. And I can't imagine what you had, what you and your family had to go through. And we're still I, going through it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm assuming you always will. Yeah. yeah. How do you have the the ability? My first inclination would to be protect them even more. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have to do, I, I, how are you able to mm-hmm. to continue the path of I've got to make sure that they are, are equipped to fail because it's going to come in some form sure. or fashion. Like yeah. I, I find that it's it's amazing that you because that scares the hell out of me. Yeah. Even hearing you talk about it, and I'm you've not, you've just only given me a piece of. Yeah. How how are you able to do that? Um, you know, we had the master cast, and I'll I'll kind of repeat a little of that, but I'm going to go into more detail. I'm just asking as a dad because that's sure, sure. I, that's yeah. one thing. Yeah. I, like you, I'm a first generation college student. Yeah. Seen quite a bit um, growing up as a kid, um, yeah. and my inclination is shield them. They need to be aware of it. I don't need them to go through it. Yeah, and but they're going to go through some. They're going to go through it. You know, yeah, and I know they through. are. Yeah. So I'll start with this kind of a revelation, if you will. And, uh, and I'm going to use COVID as an example, because that was a big shock to all of us sure. too. So, you know, I'm going to use COVID because we can all relate to that one. Right. So what did COVID do for us? Right. People lost loved ones. You know, uh, there were some pros and cons to it. I, I think on a positive side, I try to be very positive but on, on the optimistic side. I think we learned some things. I think, you know, how do we leverage technology and in person? I think we got that. But it also taught us some other things, too. It taught me, and I had a time to really reflect on it, that I need to love more. Mm-hmm. Mm. Love harder. Mm. Forgive more. Mm. And value your friends and family. The death of my daughter taught me that. And COVID taught a lot of us that. We got to forgive more, right? Yeah. We go through life and sometimes people will hurt us. Sometimes it's intentional, right? And you struggle with, oh, man, I know I'm supposed to forgive. Yeah, it's hard to do it. But it's hard to do. I did something on forgiveness and I wasn't 
ready for all the responses. So I sent out a weekly email blast to friends and family. And I did something on forgiveness. And oh, the number of emails I got back and telling me just how hard that is. It was an eye opener for me, right? And so I'm using COVID because again, everybody can relate to that, but it certainly applied to me when my daughter passed. Mm -hmm. Love harder. Forgive more. Value your friends and family. Those are the lessons I learned. Now, I'm going to brag on this team here at Mays because that support network is very, very important. And I didn't ask for it. I'm just blessed. The word got out a couple of years ago, right down the hallway. There are two ladies right there. You walk into the dean's office, there are two ladies right there. Both of them have lost children. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. When you, as soon as you walk through the door. The word got out, and I learned, I didn't even know, how many people in this college, faculty and staff members who have lost a loved one, and in particular a child, right? We all got together. They, they surprised me. I walked into the office, and there they were, and people were coming around, and they surrounded me, and we realized that we're in a club that no one wants to belong to. But that support network is very powerful. Along the way, and this is related to the book, Along the way, I started realizing something else, and that is when you face one of these giants, there's energy that's produced. It might be anxiety, right? Pain, uh, and anger. Anger, all of, all of that. I mean, you remember? You, yeah. you, go, you go through a phase, yeah. right? When you're coping, there's a whole phase of that, right? It's all of that. Frustration, anger, disappointment, shock, all those things. And I would definitely, my whole family, we all went through that. We're still going through it, Right. But then I realized if that energy is being produced, and I'm calling it energy. I mean, something happens. It's like, yeah. I mean, think about people who all of a sudden can lift a car. That adrenaline hits and you can lift a car. Mm -hmm. That's energy that's being produced. And all of a sudden you're doing something that you never thought you could do before. You're lifting a car. You never thought you would do that. That's energy. And so a lot of people, and this is my thinking on it, a lot of people need to find a way to put that energy into something. Right. And people have different ways of coping. Yeah. Right. I have family members that something devastating happens and they are in the bed for two weeks. Right. They chose to sleep it off, not face it. And I get that. I mean, people cope differently. I have people who, you know, they get frustrated with something like this, a major event, a major giant, a major obstacle. And then they go off and they do something silly. Right. I don't know. Drinking and driving. Maybe doing something that's destructive, yeah, destructive. And then there are people. There are people who will take that energy, and this is the most amazing thing to me. And I'm learning that I'm not the only one; that there are others out there. There are people who will take that energy, and they'll decide to put that energy into helping other people. And I know quite a few people now. There's a man, and, and I'm, I'm want to interview him on my podcast, Victory Groove. He lost his son. He was a young Aggie here. And um, he lost his son some years ago. And he and his wife decided that they were going to build a church, a mission in Ghana. And they, that's where they put their energy. So they're helping these students, a school. It's a school, not a church. It operates like both, really. But they built a school in Ghana to help those kids. You know what they do? 
They named a school for their son. Mm-hmm. All right. And they love going there. They will go two to three times a year and meet those students. And that's how they remember their son. Yeah. That's taking that energy and putting it into something that's going to help others. This book, right? Run Toward Your Goliath. It's something that I believe could help others. Certainly my lineage, but it might help your lineage. Yeah. It might help your lineage. I don't know, but it's something to help others. Victory Groove, my podcast, is really featuring those people who have gone through something major, something devastating, right? And every one of them so far, every guest has said, yes, this hurt. Yes, this was a shock. Yes, I was going through this very stressful time, but it produced this energy. And I decided to put that energy into this. There's one who decided to birth businesses, right? He was diagnosed with pediatric cancer at two years old. What does he do? He's birthing businesses and he's hiring people, right? There's someone that's coming out. This is coming out next week. I've got a nephew who went through amazing, amazing struggles. I mean, he was slaying those giants left, right, and center. It's just amazing. The day his son was born, his dad died an hour and a half apart. You're going to hear that on Victory Group. That's my nephew, Odin Clack. His son, at two years old, was diagnosed with pancreatic something and had to go through a major surgery. What did he do? He ended up staying there in the hospital and said, I got, you know, his wife said, go home. And he stopped by this leather shop. He had never done anything with leather before. He stopped by this leather shop just to distract himself. He walks in and he's seeing tools and everything. he picks up some leather and picks up some tools and he goes to his garage and he says, I'm just going to make something. I got to do something with this energy. I'm going right. to make something. That something became Odin leather goods in Dallas. He's got an online store and he just opened his second retail store. He started in his garage trying to do something with that energy. Occupying, you know. And now he's employing people. He's got two stores. Those are the kind of people I'm looking for for Victory Groove. And I always say, if you're a believer, we already have the victory. (laughs) We just need to get our groove back. I love it. So tell us the name of the book one more time, where we can find it. Sure. Um, And then I want you to tell us about the podcast and where we can find that as well. Perfect. So the book is Run toward your goliaths right because i think we have multiple goliaths across the lifetime run toward your goliaths uh it's available on my website eli jones eli jones.com it's also available on amazon okay right there's an ebook and there's a, the physical book hardback softback i'm also working on an audio book that's to come i'll probably work on that during the holidays but um anyway that'll be fun too and the podcast, Victory Groove, I'm working with podcast architects, mm-hmm. as you know, the yes, podcast sir. architects. They're really, really good and working with the team there. And so it's available too. And it's in it's on Apple, it's on Google, it's on Spotify, and we just most recently put it out in YouTube. How do, uh, if, if people want to be a guest or think they have a story to mm. share, is there a way that they can get in contact? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Elijones.com. There's a place where you can sign in if you want to be a subscriber to the things that I'm putting out. I'm, I'm putting out a weekly thing today, by the way. Uh, I put out something about the real meaning to Christmas. Mm-hmm. Just came out this morning. All right. So I'm putting out information weekly. You can subscribe. 
and you get my email address so you can shop, you know, shoot me an email and, uh, and we can talk about it. But it's got to be that thing because the whole thing is meant to inspire. Right. It's to take people like me with, who went through that dark time, all right, and decided to do something with that energy. It's got to be that kind of a turnaround. And then when you look at it from that perspective, it helps people go through the kinds of things that we've gone through. It's that club that you're talking it's about. It's the club. Nobody wants to be in. That's exactly it's, right. It's good that there is a club. That's right. Dr. Jones, thank you for thank being you. a part of the Path I appreciate Forward. It. My pleasure. Thank All you, right. sir. All right. God bless you. Thank you for joining us on another episode of The Path Forward. We had a great conversation with Dr. Jones. If you would, please hit the like button and subscribe if you like what you're hearing. See you next time.